This morning our subject, Lessons from the Harvest, from John chapter 4, verses 31 to 42. Last week we covered the well-known story of the Samaritan lady and her well-known conversation with Jesus at the water well. She had a life, a very colourful life, filled with marriages, marriage after marriage, different relationships, but not really one that was true, that was continuous, that was faithful, one that really mattered, like the one that she was about to begin with, with Jesus at a spiritual level. To her, to this woman who was desperate, Jesus offers living water, the type that never runs out, to satisfy the soul that never finds, that cannot find satisfaction anywhere else. When she goes back to town, she found the men of the town and told them, and I'm sure it wouldn't just be the, the men, but it would be the, the population, the people who lived in this village called Sikar, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, given this woman's somewhat colourful past, that comment must have stirred a bit of interest. And when she said, could this man perhaps be the Messiah, it wasn't the exuberant confidence that, I suppose, the declaration that he is definitely the the Messiah. It is, however, could this be him? Could this be really the one that we're waiting for? She's sort of not sure, but it was enough to get the interest. It was enough of a witness to get the interest of the people who listened to her witness. She doesn't fully understand all there is to know about Jesus. How he's but he is different, isn't he? There is something about Jesus that is very different to all the other men in her life. That much she knew. And in her heart, she suspects that what he says, what he speaks, is the truth. So let's look at the first couple of verses, the preamble to our message this morning, the obedience as nourishment, obedience as nourishment. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Remember that the disciples left Jesus at the well while they went to town to get Maccas or KFC. They were all hungry. So when the disciples return with their nuggets and everything else, the conversation turns from the topic of water that she had been talking to with the woman at the well. It changes from water to food. When they bring him back to Jesus, he responds, I have food that you know nothing about. Now, you have to feel sorry for the disciples, right? They're trying to keep up with Jesus. 
they're working at one level and Jesus is coming at another level. They must have turned to each other and says, okay, we're missing something. What's going on? Maybe somebody else is, is giving you food, giving him food, whatever. It, it's, you know, Jesus suddenly shifts. That's what he tends to do throughout the Gospel of John. You have to keep up with him. It's not that Jesus doesn't need physical food. He, when he took our flesh, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he felt pain, he bled like you and me. But he's talking about a different type of sustenance, a provision that is even greater than physical food. He viewed viewed his obedience, his obedient work, his obedience to the Father as being that which nourishes his soul. We have a lot of shows these days about food and cooking shows and food shows and all of that. The different places, the different countries and the food, the culinary delights that are around the place and you just sit there and you watch and you say, wow, I've got to try that. Oh, I've got to try that. Oh, you know, a bit like Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson and donuts. But, you see, for most human beings, that's what it's, it's at. The ultimate pleasure is, is on that which you can consume. And you eat that food and after a while it's, it's, it's done. What if you ate something that never runs out? That keeps you going and going and going. When we obey the Father's will, It nourishes our soul in a way that nothing else can. It satisfies. Nothing is more frustrating for the son or the daughter of God to be living outside of the will of God because that is energy sapping. You know that you're doing something wrong. You know that you're walking outside of the Father's will. You know that your life is empty because you are not living according. You you are called to a higher value and you're living down here and you're saying, I can't keep doing this because I've tried this, it doesn't satisfy. I've tried that, it doesn't satisfy. But when I was growing up in my father's house, the way that I have been instructed, I know what the truth is. I know what living by God because I've seen it in my parents. I've, saw it, I've seen it in my grandparents. I've seen it in the people in church. I've There is joy in their life. How come I haven't got that? The answer is simple. You're seeking your nourishment. You're seeking your pleasures. You're seeking all this other stuff from other sources instead of the place where, the only place where you know it can be found.
Doing the Father's will nourishes us. We have billions of people out there who are living their lives in ignorance outside of God's will and they, because they know nothing of God's will apart from that which is revealed by, by nature as Romans 1 tells us and by natural revelation. So in the end nobody really has excuse. But for the Christian who is in this world and he you know, he's sort of finding out what is, what is, how am I supposed to live? Well, we, we have the, the, the things that God has called us to do, but as you mature, as you grow, then the question begins and, and, and you have to ask yourself and say, well, what does God really want me to do? What is my purpose? And we come to the Lord in prayer and we ask the Lord to guide us, to know his will. So one of the main purposes in prayer is actually to align our will to God's will. And as we align our will to his will, we discover our purpose, our calling. Mark Twain. Mark Twain said this, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day that you find out why. It's a good quote, isn't it? So let's reflect on the words of Jesus regarding the harvest. Firstly, the opportunity. The opportunity. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. I can just imagine that at that very moment, that as they're looking out, as Jesus is saying this, that off in the distance he could see the Samaritans coming from the town to the well. So Jesus says to his disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Maybe there's a group of 40 to, to 60 Samaritans their robes, their white robes, glistening in the sun. They were the fields who were ripe for the harvest. Not the wheat or the grain that could have been around. He was talking about something else. Sakar, the town there in Samaria that was discriminated against because they were on the other side. This was the harvest field and the people of Sakaar were, were ready to be harvested for the kingdom of God. Now in normal farming, there's a few months you have to wait between the sowing and the reaping. So Jesus was referring to some proverbial expression that was used by farmers as they waited for the crops to ripen around about four months. If you've ever done any planting or gardening, you understand this saying immediately. It makes sense. But here, there's no four-month interval between the sowing the seed in the, in the heart of this Samaritan woman 
that he was just talking to moments ago and then the quick harvest that resulted. It's the sowing and the harvesting were happening right there. There was no long interval. Amos, the prophet, said in Amos chapter 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the ploughman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. This is the wonderful promise of the days of the kingdom. The imagery where we plant it and it almost immediately starts sprouting up so that the reaper overtakes the ploughman. It's, 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 You've got you to see this image. The reaper overtaking the ploughman. That's how, how fast it is growing. Why? Because the curse has been removed. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Do you see the people in the world? Do you see them? Can you see them? They need to hear the gospel. He wants us to see the world, the world's people as he sees them. Though lost and on their way to hell, they are precious in his sight. And by divine grace, they can become a new creation, made beautiful. Any of you raised in a farm will recognise the force of this analogy here, that, that the, the, the wheat is, is, when the wheat is ripe for harvest, when the wheat is ripe for harvest, it takes on this, this golden almost white appearance. However, if the reaping is delayed, the grain begins to turn pale, pale white, and will soon fall to the ground. It'll go off. To speak of white fields is to stress the opportunity of getting into the fields while the opportunity is there, before it is too late. That's the white harvest. Secondly, verses 36 to 37, the workers. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, and another reaps is true. Jesus here talks about sowers and reapers. There are many people needed to do the work. There are a variety of gifts and callings for ministry within the church and we all contribute in one way or another to the harvest. Each of us has their role and part to play. Those who finally collect the fruit actually are are reaping the labours of others who preceded them. But whatever the task, the harvest depends upon the supply of workers in the field. I can tell you one thing, there will be no harvesting if there is no sowing. 
So somebody along the line has to do the sowing. Now in his physical body, while he was here on earth, Jesus met many needs of people. People kept coming to him and he kept healing them, he kept feeding them, he kept preaching to them. He met many needs, but he could not possibly meet all the needs of all the people. But while he was ministering, he had this band of followers, his disciples, on whom he concentrated his teaching because they were going to then reproduce. They were watching him do it and then they were going to do it themselves. They were going to multiply his labours. He began to slowly involve them in his work and gradually the responsibilities kept growing. And as we know, of course, there were setbacks and progress and frustrations and then progress and maturity was painfully slow. But Jesus patiently keeps moving them toward his goal of Matthew 28, of of going into the world. The fact that this group is small at the beginning only a band of brothers, makes no difference. All that matters what these disciples learn to reproduce his life and teach those close to them to do the same. In his farewell from Matthew 28, he's told them, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. It is not a call for a few chosen saints, a few professionals. The Great Commission is actually a lifestyle. It's the way we live. An intentional way of living every day where workers are prepared to go into the harvest. My daughter and my son-in-law were staying in Rome just a block or two away from the Colosseum. This majestic structure and and I just saw some of the pictures. You might have seen some of them on Instagram or Facebook. And my thought, even as I look at that humongous structure and, and all of that, is thinking the stuff that went in there. Stuff that went in there. You, you, you marvel at the structure but then you, you go back 2,000 years and, and, you sort of, and, and this sorrow fills your heart and say how many brothers and sisters were fed to the lions and the gladiators and others that were just lambs to the slaughter all because they were following Jesus and nothing was going to stop their witness. They didn't end up there because of some negative comment on Facebook. It's not because they were ostracised at work. It's because they actually declared that Jesus was their Lord and Saviour. The whole family. Mum, dad, kids, everybody. 
sent to the slaughter and you're saying, wow. And, and he touches you, he challenges you and you're saying, man, am I prepared to do that? Am I, will I be prepared when the calling comes to, to, to join them? To, 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 to be what they were from these band of followers who, who were started off as cowards, who they all ran away. They all scattered when they saw the Saviour clinging from a cross. And yet, just a few years later, many of their followers, Peter was dying in Rome, and Paul and others, and the witness continues. You go from that to that and you're saying, this is supernatural. No one could possibly do this in their own strength. And that's right. It wasn't. They weren't on their own. God was with them. God was making a way for his word to be proclaimed in the darkest of places. And this is what takes us then to verse 38 the commitment that is needed. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. <clears throat> Every now and then I, we go, a few of us go to a, a property near Bathurst where we sometimes spend some time and on this property, about 1,500 acres, there are some chestnut and walnut trees in a valley next to a creek. If you know anything about walnut trees, walnut trees take about 10 years to bear fruit but about 30 years to produce good fruit. 30 years. The owner's who planted those trees and did the clearing and all of that are no longer living there. But as they planted these trees, they must have watered it and uh, taken care of it and all of that. And they knew, because they were already retired when they planted all these things, they knew that they were, they were going to be too old to benefit from these, from these walnuts, from these chestnuts. They were going to be too old. But they were looking forward, they were looking to a time when their kids or their grandkids, when they came to the property, they could benefit from, from these nuts. As we walked across the property and found all these walnuts on the tree and some on the ground and all that, we were reaping the benefits of someone else's hard work. We didn't have to pay for it. It was simply a blessing. We were being blessed by somebody else's sacrifice. We were reaping what we had not worked for. If you consider picking up the walnuts and breaking them, that's work, right? Nah, that's the easy bit. One of the, the dangers 
is that people like you and me are not mindful of the sacrifice that has gone before. Worse, that it is actually my right, my cleverness to actually take advantage of somebody else's hard work. Bad luck? It's mine now. On the 19th of June, 1853, David Livingstone in his diary, David Livingstone, the missionary to, to Africa and, and explorer and also uh, very much somewhat involved in the eventual freedom for slave, ending the slave trade in Africa. He wrote this, David Livingston meditating on these very verses that I've been reading to you from John chapter 4 about the harvest. He, he wrote and he said that he, he actually revealed that he had no expectation of a spiritual harvest during his lifetime. He actually said that. And despite the tears and the agony, few souls were won for the kingdom during his lifetime. And as far as we know, only two people were actually converted by David Livingstone during his lifetime. And, but this is what he wrote, and I quote, this is exactly what he wrote about 160 years ago. He said, Another century must present a totally different aspect from the present. Future missionaries will be rewarded by conversion for every sermon. We are their pioneers and helpers. Let them not forget the watchmen of the night. We who work when all was gloom and no evidence of success in the way of conversion cheered our path. They will doubtless have more light than we. But we served our master earnestly and proclaimed the same gospel as they will do. Look at Africa now. In Zimbabwe, where Livingston was, about 70-75% of the people are Christians. And you say, well, they just, they just call themselves Christians. They're just traditional. They grew up. And maybe for some of them, they are. But I can tell you, even, even as I was you know, staying there next to Victoria Falls, there's a lady doing the cleaning and she was singing a hymn as she was doing the cleaning. So it's obvious. It's obvious that this is not something that, for them, it's their faith. This is a life. They're actually living it out. They're not hiding it. Think of the generosity of God's kingdom. Many times he lets us enjoy the fruits of someone else's labours. It happens when we share our love of Jesus with a friend who perhaps whose family Maybe we didn't know about it, unbeknown to us. Maybe that family has been praying for this person for years. And we want to take the credit. (laughs) That's sad, isn't it? That we led somebody to the Lord. I'm sorry, but... You're just being a witness. You're doing what you're called to do. 
Jesus' words also imply that we may plant seeds and, and we will never see the harvest, but somebody else might. Therefore, we, we can rest. We have to rest on the fact that we are ultimately not responsible for the outcome. God's work, after all, doesn't depend on us. He has all, all of the resources for a bountiful harvest. We are simply privileged to be working, to be playing a role in it. Maybe for us Christians in Australia, today is a sowing and, and growing and pruning time. We find ourselves wondering about the difficulties in, in reaching hardened hearts to a world that seems to us a world indifferent to the gospel. But we rely on the promises of God that the prospect of a harvest has to urge us on that even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, he will give us enough indications, enough encouragement. And, and the prospect of a harvest urges us on to, because it's going to happen and it makes our burdens lighter because ultimately it, we are simply doing what he has called us to do. What we have to do is be committed to the harvest. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. A great verse. You know it well. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's a great encouragement, isn't it, from God's word. Don't give up. Verse 36, the joy, the joy, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Uh, The sweat and the toil of getting the crop in are, are nothing compared to the reward of the harvest. Like I said before, in our discouragement, sometimes we need to look ahead, keep our eye to the future. And the joy of the harvest. Sometimes we will experience the joy of the harvest in his goodness this side of heaven. That the, the sower and the reaper rejoice together. They come together and says, praise the Lord, look what he's done. Sometimes the sower and the reaper is the same person. If not, we have the promise that it will happen in the life to come and we will be able to see it from the other side or meet people in paradise who we were used in one small step to the glory of God. And one of the reasons that Christ endured what we had, what he had to endure, the sufferings and the cross and And all that was that he was seeing this joy beyond the cross, beyond the present sufferings, beyond the pain. Hebrews 12.2 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, 
for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy that was set before him. We are living in a generation like no other which seeks instant gratification in everything we do. I can go on about that, but it's instant gratification rather than preparing something for the future. Before, you could pick up a, well, you had to start paying off your television or whatever, or your furniture, whatever. Remember, lay-by? And then uh, six months later or a year later, you pick it up for the joy that was set before you, right? No, now with credit card and everything else, we can have it now. You can have it yesterday. What are you waiting for? Instant this, instant that. When it comes to spiritual matters, there's nothing instant. When it comes to family and marriage and relationships, there's nothing instant. When it comes to the hard times and the difficult times and the suffering, there is nothing instant. Lord, just take it away. No. For the joy that was set before him. I hope and pray that we also fix our eyes on Jesus and get the same perspective for the joy that is set before us. The mission of the church may seem slow, sometimes frustrating, often discouraging, yet the ultimate triumph of the gospel is never in doubt. It is never in doubt. It's not as if you're going to put bets like the World Cup on who's going to win. Well, we know who's going to win. It's easy. The thing is that we have to stick at it. There is no uncertainty. It is certain. It is promise. Jesus, the Lamb of God, triumphs. And he receives all the glory and honour. And lastly, the harvest. The harvest itself. Verses 39 to 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he told me everything I've ever done, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves. We know that this man really is the saviour of the world. As the Samaritans arrive, it's just another confirmation. We looked at this principle back in, in Genesis. It goes from second-hand knowledge to first-hand knowledge. These disciples, these uh, villagers, sorry, had done what the disciples who were first called by Jesus, what they did. 
Remember, uh, Jesus called uh, Nathaniel. They came and saw and ultimately they believed. Come and see. That was the invitation. Come and see. Their faith now for these villages wasn't based just on the witness of the Samaritan woman. It was first-hand experience. You've heard the expression that God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. What do you mean by that? Well, God only has children. We call God our father. We don't call him our grandfather. You cannot have a relationship separated by certain degrees. It's a personal relationship. One way to explain this, you can raise a child and you can share the truth with them all their young years while they're at home. But there comes a point in a child's life where they must come to their own faith. It's called maturing, maturity. They cannot live in the faith of their fathers and their mothers. They cannot simply tow along in, in, the, in the stream of the mum and dad. To our young people I say this, you aren't going to heaven because your mother was a godly woman and your father was a missionary. You've got to make the decision on your own. You can live off your parents' faith or your wife's faith or your husband's faith or your children's faith only for so long. You can only tow along in the, in the slipstream for a while. Ultimately, however, you have to step outside and if you're not prepared, the wind is just going to hit you and knock you out. Sooner or later, you've got to step forward and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. He's not only the saviour of the world, he is my Lord and my saviour. It is a personal relationship. You have to come to that point. What the Samaritans say here is remarkable, isn't it? The saviour of the world. It's actually only this declaration that he really is the saviour of the world is only found here by the same author here and the first letter of John. And it's very significant that Samaritans applied this to Jesus straight away and the very people that, to whom Jesus was called, the Jews, they would not believe. And yet these people did. We all have our stories of how we have come to faith, haven't we? And we all need to understand now that we have come to faith, the calling that we have that God has placed upon us to be witness for the kingdom.
my role in sowing. Otherwise, it'll be just like me eating those walnuts without, without actually being grateful of the, those who actually planted the thing before. Now, it's my role to go and plant some walnuts so that 30 years from now, somebody else will, will benefit. Something more precious has been left in our hearts, which is the gospel. The seed. The seed of the gospel that has been planted it has to bear fruit. And, and in these times, that this, this model of relationship, the one-on-one witnessing that we go and we tell people, we share with people with whom we develop relationships that might take a year or two years or five years or ten years, and, and there will come a time when we actually start to speak of deeper matters Some people prepare the soil. Other people plant the seed and share the gospel. Maybe there are several plantings, several times where the seed has been planted. And somewhere down the road, another person or persons might be involved in the harvesting and the cultivation. One thing is for sure, it is God's field. It's his garden, it's his field. He is the one that causes the growth. And it is liberating because it takes the pressure of us. All you're called to do is share the gospel. You're not told to convert anybody. You just simply told, tell the good news. That's it. You, you, you're not called to transform a person. That's God's work. What you can do is make yourself available so that God uses you. So that God fills you with the joy of having obeyed him. And God might actually give you the joy of sowing the seed and reaping the harvest. But it all belongs to him and all the glory goes to him. May God bless us. Amen.